All right. Well, why don't you all turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We're going to be in verses 97 to 104. I'm so used to youth group, I was about to ask somebody else to read it, but I'm going to read. Uh, I'm not going to do that. So that's Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, uh, teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. So let's pray for, for this time right now. Father, I just pray that you would go before, Lord, that you would prepare the hearts and minds of everyone here. Lord, that your saints would be encouraged. Lord, that those who have not bowed the knee yet would be convicted. God, there is nothing that anyone can say that would change a heart, but it is the power of your word alone that can work. So, Lord, I just pray that you would put me to the side and that you would speak to your people, Lord, that you would encourage and edify, that you would convict and set right. Lord, I just pray that our hearts would be ready and willing to receive your word this morning. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So for our summer series, as you guys know, we're going through um, portions of Psalm 119, and it's a, what's called an acrostic psalm. It's set up and organized according to the different alphabet, uh, the different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Each eight verses is its own section, um, organized in that way, and that gives a lot of interesting flow in terms of the poetry and the, the music that would have normally accompanied it. But it's also very interesting how it's used to tie in a lot of the theological concepts. Uh, I thought it would help us today to start with a bit of a word study on some of the terms that we're going to see repeated over and over and over again. As you guys heard in Psalm 19 in the reading, there's a lot of terms that the psalmist uses for the word of God. Um, So I'm going to stretch your brains a little bit. And we're going to look at these, uh, these different words. And the author didn't pull out some old Hebrew thesaurus scroll and say, what's well, another word for scripture or um, Bible verse? Um, so we're going to look at the six different terms that he uses in this passage um, during his revelry of God's word. So they are his law, his commandments, his testimonies, his precepts, his word, and his ordinances or judgments, depending on your translation. So in this passage, each is tied to a blessing and an action or a requirement. So they were not chosen at random. They were actually very carefully selected in a way that draws out the diversity and the beauty of God's word. So everything that's contained in in scriptures. So real quick, I'm going to set a baseline understanding for us uh, for this morning, just so that we know exactly what each of the terms means and how it relates and just how it brings out the beauty of God's word. So the first one is, in 97, is the law. Right, which is Torah, it means the instructions, the direction containing the divine authority from God himself. So this is something that God has commanded with his own authority. And this is slightly different from the next one, the commandments in verse 98, which is in regards to the written code of law or the decrees of God. 
So think, thou shalt, thou shalt not. This is a very direct decree from the Lord. In verse 99, it talks about the testimonies, which is in regard to the testimony of God himself about himself. So, um, I think a lot of you guys know, I've heard of the Ark of the, the Testimony, right? It's where the, the Ten Commandments were laid. Now, this, these Ten Commandments, they weren't strictly just rules or commandments. It contained both commandments and the reasonings tied to them um, based off of the, God's testimony of himself. So, for an example, you shall not have any idols before me. That's your commandment. For I am a jealous God, which is his testimony of himself. It gives us the reasoning for it. Make sense so far? Okay. So you can think of them as the truths that God has declared of himself. The next term that we get is in verse 100, and it's repeated in verse 104. It's his, pre- his precepts. So this is a thing that is appointed by God as a command or a principle intended specifically um, as an application for general, uh, general rule of action or of life. So these are more g- general commands for life. Um, and again, it's brought up twice in this passage. So we also see the term word used in verse 101. And in English, you see it repeated in um, verse 103. But in the original Hebrew, it's actually two different words. So for verse 101 version, <laughs> um, it's the word for that of speech, or the word of command, so a message or report. It's where um, God gives advice or counsel. So this applies to when God speaks directly to his people, including when he tells his prophets to relay messages from himself. It is a direct message from God to his people. And then the last um, different term that we have is of judgments or ordinances. Um, It's judgments in terms of like a court case, making a decision, a deciding decision. Um, It's the execution of a judgment. Think of God's authority carrying out what he has decided and decreed. And then the final one that's the same in English but different in Hebrew, as I mentioned, the term your words, right? He says, your words are sweeter to honey, sweeter to my taste than honey. This is a more personal term, whereas the first one held more weight in terms of relaying a message. This one has more to do with the utterance itself, the speech. So there are times recorded all over the Bible when God himself speaks directly to his people, and they're able to hear him talk, and there is a personal connection because of that. Now, for us, there is a personal connection because God uses his word to speak directly to us. It is a living word. Um, It just brings to mind just the the comfort that comes from someone directly talking to you rather than dead words on a page. It is directly speaking to you. But we're going to come back to that as we get to that point. So that was our very long, brief word study for the beginning. But hopefully this kind of helps set the, the pace and the understanding for the passage and the flow as we dive in. So to get to the preaching point, I believe that God gave you this passage this morning that you would delight, that you would bask in the delight that his sweet word brings. So he gave you this passage that you would bask in the delight that his sweet word brings. So we're going to be looking at what caused the author to be so moved as he was writing these verses with such love and delight in God's word. And we're going to be looking at three blessings that come from being wholly devoted to God's word. So first off, God's word is your delight. Verse 97. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is, the medi- it is my meditation all the day. And so, while this is not the beginning of the psalm itself, it's kind of towards the middle, this 
and I said earlier, this psalm is sort of separated into these different sections. Each is driven by that, that next letter. The progression of Psalm 119 is really beautiful in how it's broken up by these letters and by this flow of theology that's woven into it in a sort of a logical pattern that you can follow. It builds upon itself as you go along. So it's, each section is not devoid of the connection to the sections before and after. In Lamed, which is the section right before ours, the eight verses before 97, it's talking about how unchangeable the nature of God's word is. All right? It's unfailing and powerful endurance. So he, he's talking about the beauty of God's enduring word. And then in response to this, you look above verse 97, it says Mem in most Bibles. That's that next letter. This is our passage this morning. It's praising God for the bounty of his word. So it starts off in 97 with an exclamation of rejoicing, of love for God's, for God's word. And it's not an involuntary, like, yell, right? It was written down. It was chosen. But it's something that has been building up in light of what we've been reading and what he has been writing up until this point in the psalm. Right? They've been building up the beauty of God's word, the enduring nature, the truth of it. And then it culminates here in this exclamation of his affection for God's word. And we can see here, the, it's the only right response towards God word, God's word for the one who really understands what we have in the scriptures. The entirety of the written word of God is given for our edification, for our enjoyment, for our education, for our conviction, for our salvation, our growth, and so much more. So the right response, as shown here, is an outpouring of love for God's word. And it doesn't merely stop at yelling, I love it. It would be kind of weird if that was the end of it. There's proof that it is something that the author loves and enjoys in what follows. You see here, he says, it is my meditation all the day. So when you truly love something, it makes sense that you'd be thinking about it a lot, right? It's going to be on your mind a lot. Someone who claims to love baseball, right, but then they can't name a single pitching style, can't name a single team or a player, they're probably lying because they don't know a thing about baseball. Spurgeon said of this verse, Familiarity with the word of God breeds affection, and affection seeks yet greater familiarity. So, familiarity with God's word, meditating on it all the day, cultivates a love for it. And the more you love it, the more you'll long to spend time in it and with it. So this tells us several things, in that you cannot be familiar with something and not know it well. Right? You can't claim that someone is your best friend and not know a thing about them. You'd make that claim of, of close friendship based on the fact that you do know about them. You do know things about them. And the same is true for God's word, but infinitely more so. You cannot claim familiarity with it or love for it and not be spending time in it and reading it. Amen. Right? It just looks silly. So this means that a shallow understanding does not equate to a close association with it. So when the author of the psalm says it's his meditation, he's not saying that he merely reads it, he understands the words well enough, and he leaves it at that. Now, the meditation on God's word is a continual musing over, a thinking of, a studying of God's word. It is digging deep into what's written and the full thoughts, the concepts, and the reasonings behind everything that is contained in the word. It's knowing of the goodnesses of God, the failings and fallenness of man, in the prophesied and fulfilled role and work of the Messiah for you. 
So there is dedicated time that's devoted specifically to diving deep into the scriptures for the purpose of knowing God more. He loves the law of the Lord, as we should too. He desires to spend his time there. As he learns more, he loves it more, he longs for it more. The the love of God's law drives you to long for it. And not just sometimes, like you're required to share Someone asks, can you give a little devotional? Can you lead this little study? And then you're like, okay, now I'm going to go read and I'm going to spend my, stu- my time studying. This is a continual, in-depth look at God's word. So we're not supposed to believe that every waking second of this guy's life was spent covered with scrolls and you know had his quill out and all that stuff, trying to decipher God's word. He wasn't sticking his head out the window waiting for God to speak to him. But when he says all the day, we know that there was not a day that went by that he didn't dwell on the law of the Lord. He didn't allow a single pass, a day to pass without thinking of his word. And that's because he loves it so much. And there are such sweet benefits and blessings that we get from it. You would be remiss to ignore it for even a single day. As your love for the word grows, there is an inherent blessing that we receive just from desiring God's laws, right? So think about it this way. If there's something in this life that you love, uh, you get to look forward to, everything else kind of seems a little bit brighter, right? You have something to look forward to, whether it's a, a person that you love, a hobby that you enjoy, maybe there's a trip coming up that you've been planning that's finally happening. You have this thing to set your affection on, and everything else kind of falls away is of less importance you're able to focus time and energy to that and it brings up your spirits right even when something goes wrong you can deal with it because you have this goal you have this thing that you've set your affections on and I'm not trying to compare God's word to some of the more trivial things of this world but it's more so true that when we have a love for God's word we have something that we can look forward to and growing in reading and understanding, everything else shines because of it. The more understanding we get of the world because of the God who made it, the more we love what he has done and who he is. Daily devotion to God's word will bring you true delight. And that is not the only benefit that we see here that we're getting from God's word, which is, this is enough for us. It's more than enough, not not what we deserve. But it's not what we are limited to either with the scriptures. Right? The next big blessing that we get from verses 98 to 100 is that God's word brings true wisdom. Let's look at verse 98. He says, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. So the next blessing from the word of God is that it serves to make us wise when we read, understand, and obey it. So these next three verses are talking about the wisdom that God's word alone offers. And by way of comparison, he offers up three kinds of people. Enemies, educators, and elders. Now these verses are not supposed to be boasting. He's not proud of himself for how wise he is. It's not a psalm of pride. It's not a psalm of self-praise. It is a psalm of praise to the Lord for his word. So in this list we have here, it is glorifying God in all these different aspects for his word. Right, And although he has these different people in his life, and we all do, who would otherwise be smarter, wiser, more cunning than he is, 
Instead, he is praising the Lord for the wisdom that his word alone offers. So in verse 98, we see the comparison between a certain term of, or aspect of God's word contrasted with an aspect of worldly wisdom. We're able to see which one kind of comes out on top. Not kind of, definitely comes out on top. The psalmist says, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. And going back to that little word study we did at the beginning, right? The term commandment is for the code of law that God gave, right? And judicial dealings, this refers to the written word, uh, law of the Lord. And this is contrasted with his enemies. Because typically, especially back in that time, um, when this was written, it referred to enemies of polity, right? They were, they had status and authority. These guys <clears throat> were rulers of enemy nations, right? And they had their own standards for the rules and the morals behind what drove those rules and laws. You can often tell nations apart by their laws and what drives that lawmaking. So the commandment of God is being compared to the thought processes and the dealings of his enemies. And the psalmist can say confidently that God's commandments serve to make us wiser than those who are without them. And this is not the only application to the word enemy, right? If it, Just in general, if an enemy is someone who is directly, actionably animos, uh, sorry, <laughs> against you, right? There's actionable animosity against you. So enemies will scheme against each other. There's effort to plan, to put those plans into action against someone. And to apply this to us today, in case you somehow think that you are without enemies, today you, you might not be at direct odds, face-to-face -face odds with a politician, a king, an army general, something like that. Um, but the Christian is at all times surrounded by enemies. We're super blessed in America where we are not being persecuted to the point of shedding blood for our faith. But that can also lead to complacency when we're not actively leading or keeping our eyes open and watching what's going on. We can be tempted to think that we are without enemies here despite the warnings of Christ. Right? Our struggle here is not against people. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we are surrounded as humans by enemies of God. Because of sin, everyone is an enemy of the Lord, apart from Christ. And as believers... By association to the Lord, we are surrounded by enemies. They are enemies of God. We have, a, because of Christ, been aligned with God. Now we are surrounded by enemies. It would be in vain for us to try to struggle against our oldest enemy, the devil, who mastered the art of cunning and subtlety. It just took him one conversation to fell the entire human race, albeit within God's wisdom and judgment. It was according to his plan. That was all it took. So our own wisdom does not compare to the strength of the desires of sin in our flesh. We're helpless to fight against that. The evildoers of this world, they'll plan and scheme to carry out different types of evil, right? It is not merely unwise for a believer, if you can call it merely, for us to forsake the pursuit of wisdom. It is actually a death sentence for the believer to ignore that for the sake of your spiritual growth 
and your effectiveness in ministry. If you are not actively pursuing wisdom, you can be pulled aside, led astray, fall to the schemes of the devil. So how many professing believers do you guys know or even just know of who have been led astray by fake and weak theologies, by heresies that are blanketed in feel-good statements? This is because there's a lack of submission to God's commands. Right? You can see where they fall prey to the enemy because they do not they do not hold God's authority above all. They do not submit themselves to it. But with the wisdom that God's word provides, as we submit to it, we can yet be wiser than the enemies that we are surrounded on all sides by. So long as we stay alert and we are following his commandments, we will not fall prey to these subtleties, to these lies, and to these schemes. This is God's word has given us all that we need to be discerning, to be understanding, to be wise. And it's not only these negative influence that we get a comparison to here, right? Following the comparison to the enemies on one side, we see in the next verse, I have more insight or understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So we're showing the comparison between God's testimonies and the men and women who instructed the author of the psalm. All right, so this would apply to people of any large influence in his life, academic influences, and the like. So anyone who was wiser than him that was able to instruct him in any way. And again, this is not a boastful thing. It's not a, hey, look at me now. I was here when you were over me, and now I'm so much better. That's not what he's saying. It's actually a praise because of the fact that God's word is not limited by man's understanding, right? We are, you, you ask someone, even a specialist in a field, you ask questions, ask questions, ask what you're going to eventually get to a point where they say either I don't know or they're going to lie and make something up. There's always going to be an end or a limitation to the understanding of man, but that is not so with the Lord, so let's consider again that the, the definitions that we're dealing with. We see the resulting understanding or insight that you can gain. We see the causal testimonies of God. This is what's allowing for that. And we see the action of meditation. So let's address the understanding here first. This word refers to comprehension, careful consideration, and prudent insight. Right? It's contemplation that's born out of understanding, not merely just a surface-level amount, but something that is deeper, but the reasonings and the thoughts behind um, what is said. Again, to define testimonies, they are, put very simply, God's declarations of himself. So let's apply some, some logic here to what we've known, to what we've built up to this point. So we know that God has created all things. He is the creator of the universe. And he designed this world for a purpose, the creatures and the people within it, and he is the one who holds it all together. All right, this is an established fact all throughout. Now, we know he created us for a reason, with a purpose, and that reason is to glorify himself. Not because he needed us, but because he wanted to. So there's a purpose behind both the existence of and the workings out of all creation. Everything was made according to his purpose. Now, we messed it up in the garden, but that did not stall God. It was still according to his plan. Sending Christ was not an unforeseen event. It wasn't making up for something. It was planned. In his infinite wisdom, 
he knew that we'd mess up this perfect world that he'd made. Yet he created us anyways, with the plan of salvation ready. And when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they didn't mess up God's plan or even the orders of the world that he had established. They introduced new elements such as decay, sin, and death that were not there in that way before, but he knew that would happen. He had ordained it. So when Christ came and lived a perfect life and he died on that cross, this was still according to God's perfect purpose and original plan. We are plan A of A. There's no plan B because he doesn't need one. God designed it that way. So we know this all from the scriptures, right? And we know we can gain understanding of this world, of ourselves, and of God because of his word, specifically his testimony of himself, right? He is the one that has authored the scriptures. He used men in different ways, but the entirety of scripture is God declaring things about himself, now, this great plan of redemption that had always been there from, from the beginning. So God created everything with a purpose and a direction, and every step he has testified about himself in a way that is recorded in scriptures for you. And then because of these testimonies, we can gain a greater understanding that's not rooted in baseless speculations or hopeless hopes, empty conjectures. It is based on the objective truth that God himself gave directly in his testimonies of himself through his word. So the wise people of this world, the academics, the philosophers, who do not have this understanding based in the testimonies of the Lord, they got nothing. They have less insight into the truth of the world of life, of sin, of death, of redemption, than a middle schooler would have with a Bible and a heart that is longing for the Lord. So God uses the unwise of the world to shame the wise. You hear this over and over. And this is his tool, the scriptures themselves. Just having that baseline understanding of God's testimonies renders you more insightful than your instructors. They do not have a reason for why evolution supposedly created all this. Right? They don't have a reason for why the world moves and is held together. They call it the God force. Even the scientists, they don't know why things are held together. It is God holding it together, and we know that from the scriptures. So, with just that baseline understanding, you have more insight into the way the world works, into the reason for our being, than all of these teachers. That's why when people say, oh, I can't believe such and such happened, I can't believe so and so did this, I can't believe, I don't understand. It's not a mystery to us, because God has told us his divine purpose, how we've messed it up, how we didn't actually mess it up because it was according to his word and his plan and how Christ has redeemed the situation and everything in between. We're not left in the dark here. But it goes further still, right? That is not the limit of the wisdom that his word gives us, the testimonies and the power of those. Look at verse 100 here. He says, I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts the aged or the old or the ancient or the elderly, depending on your translation. It refers to those who were older. They have more life experience and whose longer life has granted them knowledge and understanding just by virtue of their long life. They have had these experiences. They've seen a lot. And they can give good guidance when they see younger people struggling in certain things because they've experienced it sometimes multiple times. The word here for understanding is granted that is granted by precepts of God. It's the word for discernment. It is a deep understanding. 
It's difficult to fool an elderly person in a way that they've already experienced in life. They're better at figuring out the motives of people because they've been around many people for longer. They can see angles in a better light than the younger generations because they've experienced it themselves. They've, seen, they've been around long enough to see the cycles of how life works and how actions and reactions play out. These elderly people have lived through difficulty in different circumstances. They've experienced it. And they have valuable life input. And especially in the culture that this was written into, they had a huge value on the elderly just because of their wisdom and their insight. They just knew a lot, and they were able to impart it to the younger people. Here, nowadays, not so much. This seems to be kind of like an anti-elderly movement or attitude. It's very disrespectful, and it's much to our detriment because there's a lot that we can learn from them that is just dismissed. Um, and for numerous reasons, fake morality, all that stuff that we're not going to get into right now. But having this respect, this understanding for the elders was part of the culture. And he is saying that these people who have experienced so much, apart from God's word, have less discernment than someone who is younger, who has the discernment that comes from God's word. So the priests, we're talking about the precepts in this verse, right? I have observed your precepts. The precepts of the Lord guide you how you spend your day to day. They're guiding you not through simply just written truths and laws, right? Thou shalt, thou shalt not, right? But it also helps with understanding the, the guiding principles behind things, right? You understand that God has said this because he is holy. God has said this because he is just. These are the precepts that we can use to live our day-to-day life. And this understanding is that first step towards this deeper understanding in how we live. But look at the verse. It's not just simply reading God's word that does this. There's action that is required, right? As with all of these things, he says here, I have, because I have observed your precepts. This isn't just looking at, he didn't write down what God said and stare at it, and now he's suddenly discerning. He followed it. It's a close adhere adhering to, a following, and a keeping with something. That's what this observation is. So it requires first a baseline understanding of the precepts. We have to know what they are. And then a very close, strict obedience to them. And that is where the discernment comes from. Because God does not give empty, meaningless, unfounded commands. Right? His precepts and laws aren't just because he felt like saying it one time. It's all aligned with his person with who he is and what he is. So understanding God more allows us to understand the whys and the wherefores of his law. But not understanding the reason behind the precept of the Lord is not an excuse to ignore it. A lot of people I've talked to, especially at school and work, no, I can't believe God would say that. It doesn't sound like it's in his character. I'm just not going to do X, Y, or Z. No, he says it. Just because you don't understand it yet doesn't mean that it's not a command, doesn't mean that it's not a precept, doesn't mean it's not a law that he has set. It is your job. You should do your due diligence to understand what is being truly commanded of you. Right? Don't go blindly following, especially if people are saying, oh, God has told me to tell you you got to do this. Right? And it sounds biblical enough, so you go and do it. You should be discerning. You've got to do your due diligence to understand it. But if something is clearly laid out in God's word, it is our responsibility as believers to obey it. And then it is our responsibility to go out in faith and obey it 
and then as we are, to dive deeper into understanding why so that we can better follow those precepts and commands. Right? It is your duty to examine commands to ensure you're doing it the right way for the right reason, to the best of your abilities. And God gets the glory from all of that. When you're obeying the precepts of the Lord with a desire to understand them, you get discernment thrown in because now you're understanding the reasons why. More than what mere life experience can offer, you get this discernment that is from the objective source of truth, God himself. So these are the three ways in which devotion to God's word will give us true wisdom and freely devotion to his precepts, his testimonies, his commandments. And then to follow with wisdom and discernment now, we get to verses 101 to 103, and we can see that God's word provides protection. And I say protection because it's built off the wisdom of the previous verses, right? There's, there's a flow to all of this. We can see the wisdom and discernment just mentioned playing out in practical ways here. Verse 101, he says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. Now that psalmist is making a big claim. The attempt to keep his feet from every evil way. And I don't know about you, but I cannot hope to claim such a thing. I have not kept my feet from every evil way, and I don't think anyone here can claim that. But the attempt to, the desire to, the action to, that direction, how can you claim such a thing? It is because of the testimonies of God, his law, his commandments, his precepts. They have laid out what is right and good, and then what is evil. And for things that aren't explicitly mentioned in Scripture, we know we can use what we know of God's character, the things he loves and desires, the thing he hates and does not want, to weigh uncertain things, those gray areas, and to discern what is right. And this takes work. It gets tiring weighing every little thing against God's word if you are not fully aware of what is in God's word. So if you had to Google every question that was ever asked of you, what's 2 plus 2? Give me a second. That's the capital of Nevada, right? Should I take this job? It's going to get exhausting, right? You'd hate life after a while. You wouldn't want to hear any questions. And the same applies to an unprepared believer in that it's a Christian who has starved themselves of the goodness of God's word. They will be caught unprepared and ill-equipped to recognize and fight sin, to stand firm in what is right, or even to discern what is right. But we know that a love for his word leads to a desire for it. We said this at the beginning. This leads to a deeper understanding of it, leading to a greater love for it. It is a cycle that builds itself and continues and it grows and matures a healthy believer. So the more closely you know God's word, the less you'll be forced to scramble looking things up and searching for something that you vaguely know applies to a given situation. But instead you'll be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you because you know his word, you love his word, and you have adhered to it. Tying that back to this verse, we are to take action, right? Don't yell at me for giving application in the third point instead of the conclusion. There's application here. This is where you see it playing out. This is one of the several calls to action in this passage, but if you look at the desire of the psalmist, it is to keep your word, he says. I have restrained my feet, from every evil way, that I might keep your word. 
So he's taking these steps. He is setting himself up and preparing himself to actively pursue God's words. And these words that he is striving to keep are the messages, the commands, the warnings, the advice that God has given to his people. As we said earlier in that word study, y'all got a Bible here, it looks like. If not, Bibles are easy to come by, thankfully, here. You have access to these words that we are shown he is trying to keep. And we should be following this example. We should be yearning to long after and love his word to dive into it. And there are two actions in this verse. There's an act of restraint, a shutting up, a withholding from the evil, which he can now discern because he knows God's word and he knows who God is and what he likes. And there is instead a following and obeying of his word. These things lie in opposite directions, so don't let yourself be fooled or confused. You cannot play with sin and still be following God. You cannot go down following the lies of the devil, following your sin, and still be aligned with the Lord. There is grace for when we fall, because we are human, we will fail. Christ died so that we have the chance to be made right with Christ, or to be made right with the Father. And there is grace for when we fail, as long as we repent. But you cannot be entertaining sin and still following God at the same time. They are opposites. God will not turn down or turn away the heart that yearns for him. The more we get to know him, the more we love him. We get to know him personally because of Christ. The more we will chase after him. And he will never turn that person away. So look at what the psalmist says here. Verse 102. I have not turned aside from your ordinances or your judgments. For you yourself have taught me. So when you are reading the Bible, you are not merely comprehending ink written on a page or pixels on a screen. You are looking at the tool that God has determined to use to, to, to build his kingdom with. It is not dead. It is not, even in a, in a certain way, inanimate. The pages are not going to move by themselves. They don't have a conscience of their own. But the words written there have everlasting consequences on something that is so great as where your soul will spend eternity. So do not hold the word of God lightly. He is the one that is speaking to you. You yourself have taught me the author writes, He himself is the one who is teaching you. His ordinances are from himself. His judgments are framed in infinite wisdom, which he has deemed acceptable to give you access to. God gave up so much for you. He did not owe you Christ. He did not owe us Christ at all. But he gave him up willingly. He is the one who renders judgments and himself is the one who explains them. In his word, we have these, we can gain this understanding. Knowing God, actually personally knowing him, and knowing his word, his character, his reasonings that he has seen fit to allow us to know, this should be more than adequate for you to keep your eyes always focused on him. The gratefulness that we should be feeling, this love for his word, for his character, the more you understand it, the more you cannot help but fall in love with him. Not turning aside for the whims of the world, the lies of the devil, the deceitfulnesses of sin. When you have been given the tools to see right through all of that, 
by the one who has created and ordained it all. You will not be led astray. You will not be pulled aside when you are devoted to it. So why would you trade in the beauty and the discernment and the clarity and the wisdom that God freely offers for the dismal, unfulfilling offerings of this dying world? There is nothing that can compare. There's, there should be no turning aside, yet we do, because we are sinners. We have that sin nature that resides as believers. But we still have Christ in all things. He is the one who holds us, who takes us back. He is the one that loves us personally. So we see this further contrasted in the next verse. We, we see an exclamation of joy and delight against the dying world, the useless offerings of it. We see, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And this is both a continuation and expounding on the personal nature of the verse above. Right, It relates to God being the one who is teaching. It is through his word and his words. Word being the Bible, his words being what is there. There are many times when God spoke directly to prophets, to leaders, devoted followers of himself. Can you imagine that? That the God of the universe would even notice us on an individual level is crazy to me. It's mind-boggling. That he would know our names. And in his wisdom, he saw fit at certain times to go beyond that and personally talk to people, to give his message so that we would have the ability to learn about him, to know him more. And the sweetness of God's words applies not to merely the audible sound that very few have heard, none alive, uh, alive today can attest to, but to the message itself. We have recorded directly from God many things that will sweeten our lives. How about how your sins have been forgiven against a perfectly holy God? How about further than that, he now extends the love that he has for Christ, his love for the Son, directly to you who was once an enemy of him. About the fact that the believer who dies gets to spend eternity in God's presence. Now that is true delight, true pleasure, brothers and sisters. That is something that we can exclaim, how I love thinking about how much God has given to us. This is true pleasure. Nothing in this world is lasting. Even honey, back then that was their epitome of sweetness and rejuvenation. That effect fades. I was talking about this before with my family. It was brought up that honey would revitalize them. Anytime they would eat, it would revitalize them. It's kind of basically probably a sugar rush or something. Their blood sugar was low after a battle. Eat some honey tastes great, and now you're suddenly more alert, right? Rejuvenates you. But that effect will fade. Blood sugar is going to run low again. You're going to start sweating. You're not going to taste the sweetness anymore. But we can delight in this eternal word of God. It has not changed since he has said it because he is an unchanging God, right? The eight verses before have all been explaining that. It's eternal nature. We can delight in this eternal protection that his world brings, Word brings, excuse me. And then to close us up for today, let's look at verse 104. The last section of this passage. He says, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Ooh, he's ending on hate. 
Not really. But let's cover this really fast again, because the precepts of the Lord grant understanding, right? This is a reiteration of the truths that we've been looking at this morning, but it's not for nothing. A reminder in this section that all of God's word provides us with understanding. It is a praise, right? And then a direct application. We are thankful that we get this understanding from his precepts, from what he has said, and then a direct application. Because of this, I hate every false way. And again, the only way we can know what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, is because God's word grants this understanding. It has laid it out for us. And then we have this contrast here. This is pointed out to me that this passage is bookended by opposing emotions. It starts with, oh, how I love your word, and I hate evil, every evil way. It's kind of bookending this section. This transition is not one of loving something and then growing to hate it as it goes along. This is the contrast of loving God's word, the perfection that it is. And as that love grows, you grow to hate the opposite. That thing that's in the opposite direction, as I said before, the sin, the wickedness, the evil. So we're still discussing wisdom and discernment here, right? Because it, it doesn't just say that he hates evil, right? He's able to discern what is evil, but he hates every false way. Falsehood, deception, fraud. This is what we are faced with, brothers and sisters, especially now. Confusion, betrayal, fraud. And except for the grace of God, we'd fall for it every time. But this is not so because we have the scriptures we can gain discernment even over the evildoers, the aged, the well-educated, those who would seek to harm us, those who would seek to confuse us. We can gain discernment for these things. In these false ways, they are very powerful. You guys have seen them affecting everyone around you. The craziness that has been the last two and a half years, whatever it is now, everybody doesn't believe a thing about objective truth. Everybody's lying. You're hateful. You're evil. You're this. You're that. You can throw out any label you want. There's hate attached to it. There's distrust. Politicians fighting over rights that don't exist because they have no right concept of God. You have riots that are started over lies and hatred that don't affect, a, that don't affect any real change. You have churches that are infiltrated and destroyed by false doctrines that the body was too undiscerning enough to identify and to correct. So these false ways are there on purpose. Don't be deceived. Falsehood is not accidental. It is planned. And it is carried out in many aspects of our lives. And if you're not equipped with the understanding that comes from God's word, you will not be able to stand if your love for God's word is outshone by your unpreparedness and your refusal to grow, these false ways that, we've been, that we should be on guard against and hating will instead take you. So let this be a warning. Let this be a call to action and encouragement to stand firm on the word of God. He has given his son to deliver us from those evil things. He has left us his spirit to obey him in all things. He has given us the scriptures to understand all things pertaining to life and godliness. He has not left us without adequate preparation, without adequate tools to live a life that glorifies him amidst all that's going on in the world, amidst the evil that would seek to dissuade us, and against the lies of the devil. So let your love for his word shine through you. May you grow to love him and his words, to hate all false ways, and to point others to the source of the truth that you have access to. 
I pray that this church, we would be a light, we would be a beacon of hope and of truth in the midst of all this confusion. We have objective truth. We have clarity because of the discernment that God gives. But that's if you take the initiative. you got to take that personal action to dive deep into his word, to understand what's written there, to not just check it off so that you can say you did your Bible reading, but to know God more because you're longing to spend time in his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, Lord, that you have seen fit to give to us. God, I thank you that in all things that we are not left to wonder, to figure out in our own frail wisdom, Lord, that is not true wisdom. God, I, pr- I thank you that your word brings true delight, brings true preparedness, brings true understanding. For the believer here, God, I pray that they would rededicate themselves to you, to your word, to the teachings that are there. God, grow us more in the likeness of Christ because we know who you are. We know who you are, what you are like. We know what you dislike every evil way. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take action, to understand, and further to take action, to follow and obey your word. I pray for those who have not yet bowed the knee, God, that you would use your word to shine light into their dark heart, that they would understand, Lord, that you give given that understanding, that they need Christ to save them from this. I thank you for what Christ has done, that we can draw de- near to you because of that. I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.